Welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's life-changing message from the Equipping Church. We pray you are empowered and encouraged by the Word of God. Hallelujah. Well, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen. I want you, if you will, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to kind of jump around in Luke 10 this morning. Uh, but we're continuing in our series, Engaged. Can you say that word this with, with me this morning? Engaged. I'm not talking about getting married. Hallelujah. Although I know some of you are believing for that. So, Lord, let it be. Uh, we've talked about in this series, uh, Engaged, over the past several weeks. And I'm, I'm wrapping up the thought, Engaged, this morning. But uh, two weeks ago, we talked about assuming the position that... As believers in Jesus, we are called to assume a position uh, between the living and the dead, that we're called to bring those who are dead in their sin to life in Christ. Now, we can't do that by our own power, uh, but the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives on the inside of us and quickens our mortal body, and so we carry that same resurrection power on the inside of us. And we're called to bring people into His light. And then last week, I, I challenged us to deal with some of the giants in our own lives. Giants of prejudice, giants of fear, uh, giants of uh, apathy and indifference, and that we, we cannot possess territory, we cannot reach out, and we cannot fulfill our mission until we're ready to deal with the things of our heart. And I think that so many of us, we get held back by those giants in our lives. And so we talked about that last week. And this week, I want to conclude this series by taking you uh, to one of the most familiar texts, I think, in the Bible and dealing with what I want to call two sides of the coin. Two sides of the coin. So Luke 10, uh, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm reading from the Amplified Classic and a few of these. And then I'm actually going to jump back to King James uh, to wrap up uh, this portion of Scripture. Now after this, the Lord chose and appointed 70 others and sent them out ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to come visit. And he said to them, the harvest indeed is abundant. There is much ripe grain, but the farmhands are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Verse 3, go your way, behold... I send you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Verse 7. And stay on in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. I want you to jump down to verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going to establish something, but I want to look at what I think is one of the most uh, familiar passages. It's a story that is, is told almost in every walk of life, and we hear it all the time, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so looking uh, at verse 25 and reading again out of the King James, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. 
This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. I want to pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And Father, I thank you that when you send forth your word to accomplish that which you send it to do, it does it. It doesn't return to you void. And I thank you, Father, this morning for the anointing that makes preaching easy, that, Father, your word would go forth, and that when I pull my hands back, there wouldn't be evidence that I have been with your people, but there would be evidence that you've been with your people. I'm completely aware of my total and complete dependence on you this morning, that without you, I can't do anything, God. But in you I live and move and have my being. And I thank you, Father, this morning that the anointing breaks every yoke of bondage and your word does what you say it will do. So, Father, anoint my lips to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you know there's two sides to every coin unless, of course, it's one of those trick coins? Uh, this morning I went to get a mint out of my basket up here. And when I opened up the, the, the little mint box, there were no mints. There were fake coins in it. And I thought, Kai has got me again. If you've met Kai, he loves to play tricks. I mean, they, they just think that pranking is the best thing in the world. And so thankfully, I had a second box of mints up here. Otherwise, you all would not want me to pray for you this morning. But there's two sides to every coin. The sides are forever and they are always joined. You can't separate them. They're, they're always there. You can't have one without the other. It's not an either-or proposition and in this dialogue with the scribe, Jesus manages to forever link two sides of the coin. That loving God requires and results in loving man. And vice versa. That one is not complete without the other. They cannot be separated. They cannot be full without the complement of the other. If we truly love God, we will truly love man. And if we truly love man, we will truly love God. He does, however, put the command in the order of importance. First and foremost, we should love God. We should honor God. That is most important. But consequently, that love for God will produce within us a love for man. Before we get to the points that I want to drive home to you this week, I want to do a little foundational work. Did the men that Jesus was addressing love God? 
That, that's a question that I want you to think about. Did, did these men that he's addressing, this scribe, did they love God? Yes, in fact, they were radical about their commitment to him. These were the, the pious of the day. They were so radical that they had interpreted and added to the commandments and until they had proliferated those first 10 to 613. 613 laws and rules, 248 positive and 365 negative. You didn't have to wonder if they would be at church each week. They were there like clockwork. They were in the synagogue on the Sabbath. You didn't have to wonder if they'd pay their tithes. They were automatic. You didn't have to wonder if they'd live pure. These were the model church members. They were squeaky clean. They were the religious of the religious. They, they knew the law forwards. They knew the law backwards. They knew all the rules. These were the poster boys for church folk. That's who these were. Sound like anyone you know? Sound like anyone you saw in the mirror this morning? And yet with their commitment to God, their church rules, their regulations, and the letter of the law, they didn't have the heart of God. They didn't, they didn't carry the heart of God. They forgot the other side of the coin. Their love for God should have resulted in love for their neighbor. Jesus' parable here forces these men to take care of both sides of the coin. One without the other is incomplete. You know, 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says this. If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, think nothing of it. He's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. What, a, what a, a, a glaring accusation against mankind is that if we love God, it would produce something in us that we love one another. We cannot boast that we love God if we hate our brother, if we carry any prejudice like we talked about last week. You know, one of the things that I think we, we recognize in our polarized culture, our politically polarized, our racially polarized, our agendized culture, is that we all say we love truth, but we don't love one another. And if we don't love one another, we can't truly say that we love God. Likewise, we can say that we love everybody, but unless we love God, we are unable to truly help those we love. We might be able to feed them. We might be able to clothe them. We might be able to doctor them, but we are unable to offer them real answers or hope. Without Jesus at the center of it, so this account teaches us that both sides of the coin are important and absolutely essential to live a godly, Christ-like life. So I want to look at two sides of the coin for just a moment. But before I do that, I want to point out the lessons. And I want to back up a little to verse 2. Verse 2 says this, And he said to them, The harvest indeed is abundant. Reading out the Amplified Classic, There is much ripe grain, but the farm hens are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here's lesson number one. We're praying for the wrong thing. This week I was, I was praying in my office and I was saying, God, send the harvest. God, I'm praying for harvest. And the Lord stopped me in my tracks. He said, you're praying the wrong thing. 
I mean, just right up out of my spirit. You're praying the wrong thing. Hit me. I said, well, God. He says, don't you know my word? Don't you love it when the Lord just kind of slaps you a little bit? Anyone ever had that? No, y'all are so holy. You don't need correction from the Lord. That's okay. And he says, you're praying the wrong thing. Don't you know my word? And I said, well, God, I feel like I know your word. He said, then why are you praying the wrong thing? I said, okay, teach me, Lord. What, what do I need to pray? And he said, pray for the laborers. I'm going to go back to that verse. He said to them, the harvest is indeed abundant. There's much ripe grain, but the farmhands are few. The laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We don't have to pray about the harvest. Let me say something to you. The harvest is ripe. The harvest is ready. There are souls ready to hear the gospel. There are people waiting for the answers that you carry on the inside. And we need to begin to spend our time praying for the harvesters. We don't even need to pray that God will prepare a harvest for this church or for you individually. He's already done that. He's already prepared the harvest. He told them 2,000 years ago, the harvest, it's ready. It's ripe. They're ready to hear. We need to begin to pray that you will get actively involved in harvesting and that God will send us more harvesters. I think too many of us spend all of our time praying things like, God, prepare my husband to get saved. Prepare my children to get saved. Prepare my friends. Prepare my neighbors. Prepare my city. When according to Jesus, our prayer should be, prepare me to win my husband. Prepare me to win my children. Prepare me to win my friends, my neighbors, my city, my world. Our prayer should be, God, make me a laborer. Develop within me a, a desire and a function to reach the lost at all cost. Stop praying for others to be harvesters. Let God develop within you a harvesting anointing that when you get around people, you can't but help share the love of God with them. You can't help but share with them the desire to know Jesus. You can't help it. The harvest is ready. Let me tell you that the harvest, it's not waiting to develop. The harvest has been ready since Jesus died on that cross and he made the way available. When he came out of the tomb, he came with the sickle for the harvest. And he's waiting for us to be harvesters. So how do we do that? Well, lesson number two is this. We must love God holy. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. I love the way the Message Bible puts it. It says this. Love the Lord your God with all your passion, your prayer, your muscle, and intelligence. Let me read that to you again. Love the Lord your God. With all your passion, there should be a passionate love on the inside of you. All of your passion should be wrapped up in loving the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your prayer and muscle and intelligence. My concern is that too many of us love God at worst at a fourth of the level that we should. I, I think we all love God at a certain level. Maybe some of us, we love God with our mind. Maybe some of us, we love God. But I don't think all of us, and I'm guilty of this as well, love Him with the complete package. With all our heart. All our mind. All our soul. All our strength. If we're to love Him with all our heart, not a divided heart, not with part of our heart. And the question that I think the Lord asks us many times is, who has your heart? 
What holds your heart? Where, where is your heart secured in? We're to love God with all our soul. Here the idea of soul means loving God with all of our life. Are we ready to lay our entire life at his feet? Holding nothing back. Nothing off limits to him. No area that he doesn't have access to and lay claim to. I remember a couple months ago, I was walking through some inner stuff. Anyone ever walked through some inner stuff? Or am I still in the holy church? <laughs> but, but a couple months ago, there, there, there was a real, I, I don't want to say crisis, but it, it felt like a crisis of the soul. Anyone ever had those moments where you just, you're like, man, I can't get past this. And I was praying about it. I was counseling with others about it. And I went to the Lord one day and I said, what is the issue? And he said, you haven't let me in there yet. I said, but I've prayed about it. He says, yeah, but you haven't, you haven't really let me in there. You're holding that area back because you're afraid of what I'll find in there. And then he said something. Can I let you in on a little secret? I said, sure, God. He says, I already know what's in there. Isn't it amazing that, that we have this concept that, that we can hide things from God? You know, when, when Adam and Eve were in the garden after they had sinned, God asked them a question, where are you? He knew right where they were. He wanted them to identify. He wanted them to get real. We're hiding. And it's that same pattern that we as human beings have kept up for nearly 6,000 years, a little over 6,000, depending on where you are in your theology on early creation. But for roughly 6,000 years, we've been maintaining that same stance, hiding. We hide away in those things in our life, and we, we don't let God into those areas, thinking that He doesn't already know about them, and thinking that we are such great, great hiders, and that, that we're the where's Waldo hidden in the midst of all of our stuff. It doesn't take God any time to find us. He knows right where we are, but He waits for us to acknowledge I'm hiding. That's the area. And so God is, is, is looking for us to love Him with all of our being, that we, we hide nothing from Him, that we give Him access, that in that place of our soul, that part of us which we derive our sense of who we are and where we are going, it is that combination of mental and emotional awareness which determines our desires and our tensions. And we must love Him to the point of finding our identity in Him, our purpose in Him, and our desires become him when we let him into those hidden places he begins to transform it's like that that potter's wheel we were talking with Hector and Susanna last night that you know one of the words refiner anyone ever heard God called the great refiner in Hebrew that that word also means agitator he's the divine agitator we don't we don't want God to agitate things in us we're like God just love me He's like, I love you enough to agitate you. I, I, I want to put you on the wheel, and I, I want to, I, I, sometimes, you know, I took a pottery class one time. I'm, I'm not good at pottery, okay? Not my gift. Every time I'd try and, and do something, just all fall in on itself, and, and I'd get frustrated. I'd, I finally picked up the clay and threw it across the room and stormed out. I'd paid $165 for that class, and I didn't care. But sometimes God has to take what we've molded and put it in on itself 
so that he can shape us into who we're called to be. And so, so if we're to love God with our whole soul, all of our soul, it means that we, we let him into those areas that we, we really don't want him to know about. And yet he already does. If we're to love him with our strength, all our energy, all of our abilities, all of our talents, and with our mind, see, we don't check our brain at the door. I remember I was sitting across the table one time from a, a great Baptist theologian. And we were sitting across, and listen, I'm not trying to, to delineate between denominational lines here because at the cross we're all made equal regardless of the, the denomination on your church door. But he, he said something to me that I could have got really offended over. He said, well, he says, you're Pentecostal, right? I said, yeah. He said, so... Can you tell me why Pentecostals don't use their brains? I said, sir, what do you mean by that? He says, well, I find that Pentecostals are largely uneducated. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, they're all about the experience. They're all about experiencing God. And I said, sir, have you never experienced God? He said, well, with my mind I have. I said, what does that mean? He says, well, I know God. I, or no, he said, I know about God. I, I, I've studied about God for years. And, and here he is, he's, he's born again, all right? He's saved. I'm not questioning his salvation here. He says, I've, I've, I've studied him for years and I know about God. And I said, the difference between you and I is that we both have master's degrees. He says, you do? I said, yeah. Pentecostals can be educated. It's a miracle, Right? And he goes, wow. I said, but the difference is, is that you know about him. And I've come to know him. And he says, well, you can't know God. I said, oh, sir, your theology needs to become a theophany. A theophany in experience with Christ. Where your theology leads you into encountering the living God. I said, we see that every, every person who wrote in Scripture, the men who spake only by the Holy Ghost to write script of old, they had experienced something. We need to know Him. We can't just know about Him. We must know Him. Well, that good old Baptist theologian got filled with the Holy Ghost at that table that day. And he started speaking in tongues and he goes, what is this? I said, that's what you've been waiting for your whole life. An experience with God. But I want to say to you, we don't check our brain at the door. We give him our minds. We study to show ourselves approved. In other words, we love him Holy, no area is off limits. It takes everything about us. I, I often feel very uneducated in a university city. Even with degrees, I sit across from uh, people like Jacqueline and I think, man, my brain doesn't even work. I hear her talk about research or I'll, I'll hear, hear Susanna talk about some of the things that she researches and I'm like, man, I am not smart at all. And they use this language not in, a, in a, a lofty kind of prideful way, but they're talking about things that they've studied. And I'm going, I don't need, is that English? And, and listen, I, I've got degrees. I, I, sometimes I feel over-degreed. But we love God with our mind. We can understand about God. Now, we will never fully understand Him. Because every time I think I do, He shows me something new. And I'm like, oh, man, there went that theology. He does something new, and I'm like, wait, I didn't think you did it that way. 
But see, it takes everything about us. How many of us love God this way? How many of us are holding back one of those areas? We love Him with our heart and our strength, but we refuse to give Him our soul, our identity, rather finding our meaning, our, our meaning in who we hang out with or what we drive, or we refuse to give Him our intellect, thinking that we're smarter than He is. We try to direct our own path by analyzing everything, and yet the call is for everything. That is the first side of the coin. We must love God wholly. However, it is just one side of the coin. And here's lesson number three. Our love for God must drive us to love others. We can justify nothing less. Notice, if you will, the people that wouldn't help. We go back to our story, the priest and the Levite. Most likely these men had already been to synagogue because they were going down the road away from Jerusalem. They were leaving the holy city. They were... Another indication of this is that they were alone instead of a group, which is how they, by tradition, would have been traveling to church. They've already worshipped. They've already sacrificed. They've already prayed. They've already danced. They've already... They probably didn't shout in those days, but they'd already done all the stuff. They'd already been to the, the experience that they called church, and their church had no impact on their compassion. Their God activity had no impact on their social activity. Many of us, and I'm going to call up the men, have selective hearing. However, these men were even more handicapped because they had selective sight. They looked over the obvious. They ignored the one who was hurting. According to what Jesus is saying, you cannot separate loving God wholly from helping those who are not yet whole. We cannot pass by on the other side having selective sight. Ignoring is not acceptable. How many of us ignore the obvious? We cannot separate our church life from our daily life. We cannot separate our worship from our world. Our worship should drive us to our world, not past our world. Our encounter with God should create compassion for men. I want to say something to you this morning. It's going to sound real controversial. If going to this church only increases your love for God, but never affects your love for men, then I give you permission to never come back. Some of you didn't catch that. I'm going to say it one more time. If going to this church, if being part of the equipping church only increases your love for God, but never increases your love for men, I give you full permission to never come back. Because it's two sides of the coin. We should both love God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourself. Because if that is the case, that, that you only love God, you're only viewing one side of the coin, we must be moved by compassion. So here's lesson number four. Reaching out will be inconvenient. I'll never forget the very first Sunday we were driving to Brian to, to preach in this church when they were going to decide if they wanted us as pastor. We were driving down 105 from Houston. We were coming up, and there was a guy who had a flat tire on the side of the road. And my wife did one of those elbows. Anyone ever had the elbow? Pull over. And I said, but we're, we're going to be late. And she said, do you really think it matters? All right. Can I be honest? I, I was begrudgingly pulling over to help with the flat tire. 
Now, if I remember correctly, they already had AAA on the way or, or something, and they said, we really don't need help. But how often do we see something and we think, I've got to go to church. I've got to go do this. I've got to go be spiritual. And the most spiritual thing you can do in that moment is stop for the one. The most spiritual thing that you can do in life is stop for the one who may not be whole yet, who may not have encountered Jesus, and you may be the only one. The only one. Reaching out will be inconvenient. It says that he put the man on his beast. He had to walk. He, he used his own oil and his own wine. The Samaritan had to do without. He paid for the in and the care out of his own pocket. His resources were tapped. Let me put it in our terms. He put this bloody, dirty, hurting man in his nice, just cleaned, leather clad, polished car. He gave this man the Chick-fil-A he just purchased for himself. Heaven's chicken right there. He purchased clothes for this man rather than the new suit he had eyes on for himself. The Samaritan was inconvenienced. How many of you know that having compassion will cause you to be inconvenienced? It will cause you to have to go out of your way and to use your time on someone else. You might be late for an appointment. You might have to rearrange your schedule. You might have to do without in order to reach out. Which brings me to lesson five. Reaching out will cost you. It will cost your time. It will cost your effort. It will cost your money. In order to love others, you will find yourself in vulnerable situations. The Samaritan was in a vulnerable, exposed situation. Who knows where this gang had gone? The gang could have still been there. This 17-mile-long road from Jerusalem to Jericho was often called the snake path or the bloody way. It was known that it was not a safe journey to go from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a vulnerable place. The lesson is that we will have to go down some dangerous roads to help others. It will cost us. We will find ourselves in vulnerable positions. It is always vulnerable to love and to help. You have to know that there is a chance you may be hurt. You may be unthanked. You may even be resented. See, how often do we want to help people for a reward? Can we just get real this morning? For acknowledgement. We, we want to be recognized for our social work. We want to be recognized for the things that we do. Because we're human and we like recognition. But what if they never thank you? Worse than that, I can almost handle that one. Worse than that is when they turn on you. You know, pastoring is often referred to as shepherding. And I'll let you know something. Sheep bite. When you least expect it. Often after you've just fed them and you turn to get something else and right on the back, they get you. You have to put yourself in a vulnerable position to help people. Church people bite. It's true. We've all been through it. All of us have gone through church hurt. We've all been there. We've all done that. Bought the t-shirt, gave the t-shirt back, and for some reason there's no refunds. 
So we have to, we, we, we wear it. We go through life with it. But, but let me say something to you. If you allow your hurt, your disappointment, the unthankfulness of people, the resentment to shut you down and no longer help people, you can't truly say you love God. Because how can you love God and hate your brother? Loving people will cost you. Helping people will cost you. But let me say something to you. Even though you're on the bloody way or you're on the snake path, there is nothing more rewarding than getting to bring the lamb the reward for his suffering. Because he suffered far beyond anything you will ever suffer. He suffered more hurt than you will ever suffer. He went innocent to the cross to become you and I so that we would not have to face an eternity without him. And all he's asked us to do is to tell others of what he's done. It's irresponsible of me to challenge you to reach out without also challenging you to count the cost. There will be a cost for you to hold out a hand. There will be a cost financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Remember, Jesus said, this is hazardous work. Being a believer is costly. It's hazardous. You'll encounter people that don't want to be encountered. You must be willing to pay that cost. Which brings me to the final lesson. There is a bloody way near you. There is a Jericho road in your sphere of influence. Go and do likewise. Find the road of pain that someone is traveling. As I close this morning, find the road of heartache that someone is on and travel it with them. Find the road of brokenness and look for those who are battered and help. How do we help them? Using the language of the parable, we offer them oil and wine. Oil is the power of the Holy Spirit. Using the example of how Jesus sent out his disciples, we discover in verse 17, they went out with power. That is why it is so imperative that you come in here and encounter God. That's why it's so imperative that you come to a corporate prayer meeting and we pray the things that are on God's heart. That's why it's so imperative you get plugged into a small group and you learn to, to fellowship with one another, to work through the things in your life. That's why it's so imperative that you be part of the local church because you can't do it alone. And there's something about walking together and there's something about fellowship and we can, we can relate to each other's wounds and we can help each other out of them. But it empowers us to go. This is not a place necessarily for the unbeliever. This is the place you get encountered to go get the unbeliever. It says go and win the lost and make disciples. See, if you go fishing, and I've said this the last couple of weeks, you can't fish in here. A lot of you have already been cut open, cleaned out, descaled cooked, fried. You don't look like how you used to look. You've been transformed into something that people would enjoy. I know Greg doesn't like sushi. But to fish, you've got to go somewhere to fish. I could bring the baptismal pool in here, fill it up with water, give you a fishing pool. You ain't going to find nothing. The fish are out there. And you know the other responsibility? It's not even my job to clean them up. That's your job. Go, win the lost, make disciples. You're called to disciple people.
You're called to reach out. You're called to walk with people along their bloody way, along their snake path. You're called to count the cost and pay the cost. But be assured there's power for it. The Holy Spirit has given you power to be His witnesses. But it's imperative. Come here. Encounter God. Get equipped. Be challenged. Develop relationships. Develop community. Go to lunch with people on a Sunday. Have dinner with each other. Get to know each other. You can't just do your duty. You can't just pacify your conscience. You can't just go through the motions. You must encounter God so that you will have power. But then he also gives him wine. Wine, communion. Eat in the house. Relationship. We must offer them the power of God wrapped up in a relationship with us. That's why we have seen such decline in the seeker-sensitive church. Because the days of just the one-man show giving a great gospel message. I love what Billy Graham did. I'm not dishonoring that movement that came and, and hundreds of thousands came to know the Lord. But we must walk in relationship with those who get saved. We must develop relationships one without the other is not effective. We're to bind up their wounds. We bind it up spiritually with power, and we bind it naturally with relationship. There are two sides of the coin. Don't brag about your love for God if you aren't helping man. Don't pat yourself on the back because you're volunteering and helping others if you can't also say that you love God with all of your being. They are linked. They must both be dealt with. They are inseparable. So my question to you this morning, church, which side of the coin needs your attention? Are you crazy about God and apathetic towards man? Are you knee-deep in helping the less fortunate or those who are in pain, but unable to give them the power they desperately need? We don't need more social organizations who just feed people. We don't. There's hundreds of thousands of them, and most of the money you give to them anyways just pays their CEO. We need Holy Ghost-filled believers who can not only feed their bellies, but feed their soul. We need to do the practical stuff. People need food. They need clothes. They need those things. But how unfortunate if they have a full belly and a new outfit and still burn in hell for eternity. We can't just be social clubs who meet needs. We must be the church of the living God who walks in both oil and in wine. Who see fruit in people's lives. Who reach out. Who engage with our community. And that's the challenge of this series. The next, for the month of February, I'm going to be preaching a series the Lord downloaded to me called Fireworks. And I believe that February is going to be a month of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. We're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit, how He enables us and empowers us to do what we've talked about. I want to challenge you. I know it's the 29th of January, so I didn't give you much time. But I want to encourage you fast in some way for the month of February. 
whether it's one day a week, maybe it's one meal a day, maybe it's getting off social media, maybe whatever it is that draws your time away. You know, some people, they don't eat and they just become mean. What's the purpose of a fast if you just become mean while fasting? Have some fruit of the Spirit when you fast. But maybe some of you need to fast the Kardashians. Do that for the rest of your life. Just fast all of that for the rest of your life. Just get rid of all that junk. Some of you need to fast TikTok. I went on a, on a full tilt fast. I deleted it off my phone, never brought it back. Some of you need to fast fake book, Facebook. But I want to encourage you, for the month of February, fast. I want to invite you into a fast because I'm believing that we're going to see the harvest. But in order to see the harvest, we have to see ourselves as laborers. That's the key. As long as we see ourselves as grasshoppers in their sight, we will see ourselves as grasshoppers. But if we will begin to see ourselves like the promised children of God who are meant to go and rescue them out of the plague of death and out of the plague of sin, but we need an anointing for it. So I want to encourage you. That's the first thing I want to encourage you with is I want you to fast for the month of February. And then the other thing that I want you to begin to pray about, and I talked with... Uh, our associate pastors last night about this haven't talked to the board yet, so forgive me, board. But the last Sunday of February, and if you know me, in, in eight years, almost nine years of pastoring this church, I've never done this, ever, ever, what I'm about to say. We're going to take a special offering the last Sunday of February because we're taking a step of faith. I have some feelers out. We're hiring a full-time youth pastor this year. The reality is I can't do it all by myself and I need another full-time staff member to come alongside and do what we need to do. And so we've, we've got some feelers out. We've got a couple names already that have come by text message. But we're going to take a step of faith to believe for a full-time salary for a youth pastor. And what I'd love to do is have an offering taken so that we can help them move here. Or maybe they're already in the house. I don't know. I don't know who it is yet. But the last Sunday of February, we're going to do a special offering. We're not doing a pledge. We're not doing 12 months. Those things have never worked. We're doing one offering at the end of February. So maybe for the next four weeks, you need to set something aside and pray about it. But if you know me, I don't do stuff like this. I hardly like even taking offerings. But I know that God is going to do something great this year. And that this is, this is the season of crossing over. This is the season of, of grain in the house. This is the season of wine in the house. And we're going to see the harvest because the laborers are rising up. Amen? So we're going to sow a seed for the next laborer. Hallelujah. Amen. So this morning, my question to you again is, which side of the coin do you need to deal with? We pray that your life was impacted today by the presence of God. For more information about the Equipping Church or to give online, please visit www.equippingchurch.us